Hello, everyone. Welcome to Know the Faith, Defend the Faith. My name is William Hemsworth. It is great to be back with you for today's episode. I'm excited to have my guest, Dr. Kenneth Howell. He taught a wide variety of subjects in American universities for 30 years before becoming president of the Pontifical Studies Foundation and academic director of the Eucharist Project. He is dedicated to fostering a wider and deeper knowledge of the central sacrament of the church by providing translations of the church fathers on the Eucharist. Uh, Dr. Howell, how are you doing today? Doing well. Thank you, William, for having me. This is a great privilege. Oh, it's it's definitely my pl- my pleasure to have you on to talk about this great book that we're talking about. Um, you released a book recently in January called Mystery of the Altar, Daily Meditations on the Eucharist. Now, before we get into the book, I mean, you've done a lot of work and study on the church fathers. Like, can you tell us maybe how they have impacted your life? Yeah, in fact, back in the 1990s, I was teaching in a uh, Protestant seminary, a Reformed seminary. That was the name of it, in fact, Reformed Theological Seminary in in Jackson, Mississippi. And um, I began reading the Church Fathers kind of casually at first. And then I started teaching a course in which we read them more systematically. And as I delved into them, I began to realize that there was a world here that I was unfamiliar with. Um, Now, for many people who uh, don't understand the the Reformation of the 16th century, uh, it's important to know that uh, the question that the Protestant reformers posed, this was Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, others, um, the question that they posed was very good. It was a good question. Uh, The question was, well, Whose faith and order? Was it the Roman Catholics or was it the Reformed or the Lutheran or whoever? Whose faith, mean their doctrine and their order, their church life, whose faith and order best reflects that of the ancient church? And I remember wrestling with this question when I myself was studying theology in seminary and, um, of course, came away very convinced that it was the Calvinist or Reformed that uh, that had the, the best answer to that. But the more that I began reading the Church Fathers, I began to question that. And I began to ask, maybe these other traditions have something to say. Um, I was always very, I always loved uh, languages. So I began to translate them myself uh, from Greek and Latin. And again, the more deeply I involved myself in that process, I began to realize that the reformers had asked the right question, but given the wrong answer. Hmm. (laughs) The answer really is that the Roman Catholic Church today preserves that ancient form of Christianity better than uh, than any other form, perhaps except maybe the Orthodox. But that's not a question of right and wrong. That's a question of East and West. Right. Right. And um, so. So the more that I did this, it really began to make me question, well, maybe what I've been believing really isn't Christianity or the best form of Christianity. And that sent me on about a six-year journey to reading, uh, particularly about the Eucharist. And as I did that, I finally, after six years, decided I can't wait any longer. I have to become a Catholic. So that's why I became a Catholic. In fact, tomorrow, uh, June the 1st, is my 25th anniversary of becoming a Catholic. Oh, wow. Happy anniversary. That's awesome. (laughs) That's great. 
like you said, you've done a lot of work translating the church fathers. You've written commentaries on them, you know, um, such as Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, and my patron, Polycarp. Mm. And I guess what brought about Mistra the Altar and why is now the right time to bring it to the world? Well, the Mystery of the Altar uh, book that we just came out with, my friend Joseph Cromwood and I, um, it was kind of funny how this came about. I had been translating many of these passages that you'll see in the back that I translated um, from the Church Fathers. Uh, and I was doing that for about 10 years or more and wasn't quite sure where this was all going to go. And then I met Joseph uh, when we were teaching together at the same institution. And it turns out that he was working on something very similar. In fact, exactly the same thing, except he was working on modern authors and I was working on ancient authors. So we decided that we would collaborate and, uh, and bring this to, and work on the medieval authors and, and, and offer a book that would be historically oriented in the sense that their readings here, since there are 365 of them, one for every day of the year, uh, these readings, um, cover the 20 centuries of the church from the second to the 21st. Wow. So these are saints or theologians or mystics uh, that uh, some of them recognized as saints, some of them not necessarily, but they've been, they, they've all contributed to a growing sense of love for Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. And that's the thing we've tried to highlight here is that uh, these saints show us, as any good Christian should, what it means to love Jesus Christ. And to love Jesus Christ means to love the Eucharist, because the Eucharist is Jesus Christ under the appearances of bread and wine. So we're bringing this out at, at this time, because I think in God's providence, uh, this is the need of the hour. It is to bring people back to Jesus Christ. I think that most of us, especially people that are, you know, my age or close to my age, realize the uh, the way in which Christianity has been assaulted within our culture, or if not assaulted, at least ignored completely by many people. And secular people, that is people that, that don't think of God or religion or anything, they're not even aware that of what they're missing and what they don't know. They don't know, as they say, goes, they don't know what they don't know. And, uh, and our, our job as Christians, as Catholics, is to bring them to the fullness of Jesus Christ so that they can live this, this full and rich life. Remember, Jesus said, um, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Amen. Well, we want to bring that abundant life to people. And that abundant life is in the Eucharist. And that's what these readings are designed to complement, to to show people the beauty of Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. Right. And I think really do think your, your book does that. Now, do you think as like Catholics as a whole, do you think we've lost our sense of awe when it comes to the Eucharist? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, you know, I can't judge another person's heart, but sure. just from the way that um, the way that oftentimes masses or before mass and after mass is conducted within um Within the within a particular parish, um, you just get a sense that people are taking this much too casually, as if it's an everyday affair. You know, well, we're going to church because we always go to church on Sunday, and you know, no big deal. But 
I like to go back to something. I'm, I'm just about ready to finish a second book on the Eucharist. Okay. Uh, this one is a larger book, uh, a more academic book, but it's on St. John Chrysostom. Now, just this is just an example. St. John Chrysostom calls the, the altar or the table, as they like to say in the East, the table of Christ, the, the altar. He calls this awe-inspiring. But the Greek word that he uses is the word friktos or frikodes. And, what he, and this is a word that can mean fearful. It can mean, you know, uh, to inspire dread, right? When used in a negative context, but used in a positive context, it means that it must do what you just said, namely inspire this awe in us, that what we're about to do is to receive the king of heaven and earth into our very souls. And St. John Chrysostom says, this is because of the enormous love of God for humanity. And you know what the word for love of humanity is in Greek? It's philanthropia. <laughs> it's the word everybody recognizes, right? Philanthropy, right. but not like a Bill Gates philanthropy, you know, <laughs> or a Warren Buffett. It's, it's a true love for the human race. And this is what God has. And he gives us the Eucharist as something to inspire us, this, to make us have this sense of awe that we are in the presence of God. So yeah, we, we need to work more toward that frictos, that awe inspiration that we need uh, when we come to the Eucharist. Great. How can your, and your book is broken up into daily meditations, of course, but how can someone use your book to help gain that Fritos, the fritos back. Yeah, know. yeah, that's a great, great question. Well, I think, you know, obviously, in any day of the year, a person could jump in and do and just could start reading every day. Now, I, I do think, however, that a person can't read one or two days and, and really begin to profit. This is like being fed in your stomach. Uh, if let's say you were going to change your diet and you were trying to get rid of, you know, something bad in your system. And, and put something good in there. Well, it takes time, right? It doesn't happen just overnight by eating one meal in one day. It takes time to, to filter the bad out and to get the good in. Well, in the same way in our souls, uh, meditating upon the Eucharist uh, requires that we stay with this for a good while. Uh, the other thing is that in the back of the book, there are two uh, appendices. There's the end notes, and that shows where we got the quotations from that we took from these great saints. But before that, there's an author and source index. And this is the readings, but now arranged according to the author. And so if a person, for example, wanted to follow up on one of the authors that we quote from more than maybe another like St. Augustine, well, we must have, oh, I don't know, almost 10 quotations from St. Augustine. And we have, you know, another 10 from St. John Chrysostom because of all the church fathers, they wrote more about the Eucharist than any other. So it's natural that we would take more from them. Some great saints we have a few from, like Ambrose of Milan, St. Ambrose. He was St. Augustine's uh, mentor and the man who baptized him. Um, some we have just one reading. But the person could use that, that index or that author index to study maybe a particular author or a particular period of time, like maybe the, the, 13th, the 13th century. 
what I'm hoping is that through that way, uh, through that means, people will get a realization that what they believe as Catholic Christians is not something dreamed up recently, not something dreamed up by ourselves. It's not our theology. This is the faith of the church from its very beginning. And all we've done is grow in our understanding both of the content and especially of the devotion to the Eucharist. Because the operation of today is something that is, um, um, has, been, has grown over time in the Western world. And in the Eastern Greek-speaking part of the church, um, things it's grown in a different way, but nevertheless, it's very clear that the liturgy of the church, the mass, the liturgy, is the very center of a Catholic's life, and that because the Eucharist is the center. And the Eucharist is the center because Jesus Christ is the center of life. I remember thinking when I was a non-Catholic that Catholic, like Jesus Christ was obscured by Catholics. You know, you got Mary and all these right. saints and, you know, you got all these statues and everything. And all of this kind of obscures the central person of Jesus Christ. But once you step inside the church, you begin to realize the reason they had that crucifix up there is to focus our attention on Jesus Christ. That's what the faith is really all about. Right. Yeah, Jesus is right at the center of everything. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, it, yeah. Dr. Hell, in the introduction of your book, you, I mean, you just spoke about the Western Fathers, the Eastern Fathers, but in the introduction, you talked about some of the difference in language. Can you kind of give us a brief introduction to that? Yeah, that's that's a great, uh, great thing. I, I think uh, you'll, you'll find that, and this is because of, both um, a slightly different theological orientation, but more just because of culture. Um, in the Eastern, the Greek-speaking part of the church, uh, which was, you know, Constantinople, Antioch, Alexandria, and uh, Jerusalem, the, these are the, the Eastern patriarchs, um, there is a, there's more of a, a choice of the term table as opposed to altar. Now, they do have the word altar, and they talk about sacrifice. It, it's certainly there. Uh, but it's more often they'll talk about the mystical table. And mystical is a good word, but not in our modern meaning of it. Uh, the word mystikos in Greek, which was taken into Latin too, uh, means that there's something that is unseen or hidden beneath the scene, uh, beneath what you can view or visible. Like right now, I'm looking at you, William, on the screen, and I see your face, okay? Right. But who is William Hensworth? Are you just that face on the screen? Well, no, you're a person behind that. In other words, you yourself are a mystery. That is, you're, you're, it's mystical because there's something invisible behind the visible. And what the, East, the Eastern Fathers clearly show is that they're aware of this reality, that the visible, that the visible hides the invisible. The material hides the spiritual, the, um, the, the, the tangible hides that which is intangible, that which is beyond our comprehension. So in the Eastern part of the church, I think this idea of entering into the awesome worship of heaven is there. And you see this in St. John Chrysostom. He says, when you worship God in the Eucharist, in the liturgy, you're actually joining with the angels of heaven. 
and you're singing the same song that they're singing, right? Of praise to God. And this is what heaven really is, is to join in that praise. And that's what we get just a little foretaste of in, in the liturgy and in the Eucharist. In the West, I think the, the word altar is more common uh, for, the, for, the, for the table. Um, and the word sacrifice is probably a little bit more prominent, especially as you go along in time and get to the Middle Ages. So when we talk about the mystery of the altar, that's both east and west, but it's a little bit more emphasis upon the west. Um, and this, the idea of sacrifice is really crucial because let's say prior to the Second Vatican Council, uh, maybe from the time of the Council of Trent in the 16th century to the time of the Second Vatican Council, the idea of the mass of sacrifice was front and center in people's minds. Right. right? Whereas now it's a little bit more focused on communion. Then it was focused more on sacrifice. So you, you see that difference as well. But also, if I may, emphasize that there's a lot of commonality here too. Yeah. Right? And that the reason that God gave us the liturgy in its different forms, East and West, um, that the reason he gave us that is to do what's highlighted in that story so beautifully. You remember in Mark chapter five, the woman who comes and she's got been had a hemorrhage for 12 years. Mm -hmm. Now just imagine that, you know, my wife went through menopause and so forth. And, you know, I almost could believe that that was real, you know, <laughs> that she was bleeding for, for 12 years. And here she was desperate. It says in one of the gospels, she spent all of her, her living on trying to get better. Right. And then she comes and does what? She does nothing more than touch the hem of Jesus garment. And suddenly, She's healed. That's why God gave us the Eucharist, is to heal us of our sins, to heal us of our, our sinful tendencies, so that we can enter into that joy of heaven that we begin in worship. Yeah, definitely. Amen. Now, Dr. Howell, the book is arranged in daily meditations. Like you said, it has saints from the second century all the way through the 20th century. In regard to the church calendar, was there any challenges with matching any of the quotations yeah. with with um, the meditation? Yeah, there, there sure was. And, and it, today is a good example where today is the, the blessed, uh, the feast of the, the visitation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And, but, you know, it's also because there's multiple saints on each day. Uh, it's also the memorial of St. Camilla Battista de Verano from, from Italy. And there's a beautiful meditation for today on that particular, uh, from that particular saint, because it was a little bit difficult to find a meditation that would exactly be uh, fit for the Blessed Virgin Mary, even though that's a higher feast and that's what we're celebrating today. But on the other hand, tomorrow is uh, the memorial of St. Justin Martyr. And St. Justin Martyr was that great mid-second century saint whose story we know about from from the dialogue of Trypho the Jew. And uh, he, uh, he lived, as I say, in the mid-second century, he wrote this first apology. And we quote from that yeah. uh, tomorrow, and that, that's his feast day. So some days it fitted perfectly, and other days, well, maybe didn't. So we did the best that we, we could. But it does follow the Western church calendar uh, as best that we, we could do that. Uh, so that, and one of the reasons we did that is not only because we want people to live with the church, but I'm hoping, William, that 
we can put this in the hands of every English-speaking priest in the world, so that when they when they start when they read their daily office, you know, and they read the the office of readings, the biblical and the non-biblical, right. which sometimes comes from a church father, right? That they can also pick this up and complement what they're reading, so that it will nourish their own faith. I am convinced that the more that we can see the the faith of our priests nourished deeply on the Eucharist, the more effective they will become as priests. Now, just to remind ourselves, the the reality of the Eucharist doesn't depend upon the holiness of the priest. Yes, right. That's what the church learned in the Donatist controversy, right? But that doesn't mean that the priest is irrelevant. No, in fact, his own pursuit of holiness can be a great, you might say, human spur, uh, a stimulant to bring people into a deeper faith. So part of my hope, our hope, is that this will nourish the faith of priests so that they can become a truly better instruments of God in bringing people to the faith. Well, it's like the ripple effect. The stronger their faith is, it goes to the the parishioners and the parishioners take yeah. it to the world and it's a whole ripple effect that goes all across that's <laughs> true so so what feedback have you received on the book so far well we've we've been very pleased with what we've had um it's still um you know in the very early stages of of reading it or of uh, sending it out and getting people to see it um but the feedback we've gotten so far is that people are loving it my own pastor uh, uses it in the morning as he sits before the blessed sacrament and in his own prayer Great. Uh, as well as others there what i'm hoping too, william is uh, we're looking for um, financial ways to actually send this gratis to every local ordinary in the country and my hope is that when they see it and they use it they can then maybe recommend that to their priests and you know sort of as you say a ripple effect it'll right. filter down to other people um, whether it's successful for our sake i don't care whether it's successful for the sake of the kingdom of god whether it's going to build people's faith oh that's what we really want th this to happen and there's so much more to learn too i mean we could have done a second book like this uh with uh, completely different quotations because there's so much to be done but what we have done we hope will be a great uh, a great spur or boom to people's faith now, Dr. Howell, with the time that we have left, can you tell us a little bit about the Eucharist Project? Oh, yeah. Well, this is really part of that. Um, just very quickly, um, about 20 years ago, I was interviewing for a job at a different university. And as I was doing that, I was praying also, Lord, you know, how do you want me to spend the rest of my life? At the time, I was working in the academic discipline known as the history of science. And I really wanted to get back to theology. And uh, the more that I did that, the more I seemed to sense that God was saying to me, no, I want you to forget about your academic career and focus on the Eucharist. Now, I didn't have to leave my, I didn't leave my, my academic teaching until about five years, six years ago. Mm -hmm. But the point is that I was moving, God was clearly moving me in a certain direction. And so that's when I began translating the church fathers. Uh, very extensively, not knowing where it was all going to go. But uh, this project is, is uh, of course, been completed. 
we may do others like it. But and I mentioned the second book that I've got done uh, that I'm all just about on the cusp of finishing uh, by St. John Chrysostom or about him. And uh, then uh, after that, uh, there's going to be a number of works that I hope will be more along the lines of that, that people can use. Uh, I've already got a title for one of them. I'm calling it deceptively simple. And what it means is, you know, in other words, the Eucharist looks so ordinary, right? Right. It looks so simple. And yet it's so profound, both in meaning and in power. And so I want to do meditations on what does it mean to receive Holy Communion? And why should we do that? But then ultimately, uh, two of the things. One is I'm going to write, I hope, God willing, um, the most comprehensive history on the Eucharist that's ever been written in English. Uh, I've spent years researching what has been written. And I'm surprised that there never has been this kind of comprehensive history done. Uh, so for the first eight centuries of the church, I'm going to do this, this history. And again, I think it'll be probably the largest and most comprehensive history ever done. Now, as a book, it's good. But of course, we live in a digital world, right? Right. So the last thing I want to do is to use these church fathers for the first eight centuries i want to take the quotations that i've translated and i want to put them up on a website that has both the original greek or latin and then an facing page english translation oh wow okay and in other words people like you uh you know kind of evangelists or you know apologists people uh, you know seminarians priests they can go right to this website and they can find these quotations without, you know, fumbling through a lot of books, right? They can do that. And then, again, God willing, and you know, the creek don't rise, I can um, uh, get my friends in France, in Germany, in Italy, in Spain, to do those translations of the Greek and Latin into their native languages. So it'll be in multiple languages. And so people can go to this website. If they can't read Greek or Latin, they can look at the English. But if they can, and hopefully, I hope that happens more and more, that people will return to this understanding of Latin. They can go to the Latin fathers like Augustine, Ambrose, and others. Um, and they can go to the Greek fathers, and they can get these things. And, uh, you know, I hope this will be a, a resource, you know, until the Lord returns in glory. So that's our, uh, that's our goal. That's great. Great goal. Look forward to, look forward to that, how that develops for you. That, that sounds great. I would love to see that. What, so where can our listeners grab the book and maybe learn more about you and what you're doing? Well, of course, it's it's on Amazon, but I think uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon is probably too rich anyway. So uh, let's uh, let's use, uh, I encourage people to go to Emmaus Road. Uh, let's see, I think it's Emmaus Road Press. No, it's EmmausRoad.org. That's capital E-M-M-A-U-S capital R-O-A-D.org. That's the publisher. And I have to say that this is the best publisher I've ever worked with. They're the ones that chose this, you know, faux leather cover and the design of it. And they're also fantastic with regard to promoting this book. So Emmaus Road Press is one of my real, uh, uh, real happy experiences in, in publishing. And uh, so anyway, people go to Mystery of the Altar my name, Kenneth Allen, then Joseph Cronwood, my, my, uh, my colleague, 
and uh, Emmaus Road Press. That's where they can get it. I think it's about $30. Great. Again, that book is Mishra of the Altar, Daily Meditations on the Eucharist. And uh, Dr. Hal, it's been a pleasure talking with you about the Church Fathers and this book. And um, thanks for all you do. Thank you so much, William, for having me. And God bless you. God bless you. Are you ready? Ready to discover your soul, your wild side, your passion, your joy, and excitement. From the latest slots and table games to award-winning dining, to world-class entertainment, to a luxurious resort. Discover all this and more. Discover with soul. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Are you ready? Enterprise of Pasquayaki Tribe. When you fly from Tucson International Airport, the journey is easy from ticketing to takeoff. With affordable, convenient parking, shorter security and check-in lines, and less time wasted compared to driving to Phoenix. At TUS, air travel is as close to relaxing as it can get. Now you can fly nonstop on Alaska Airlines from TUS to Portland, Oregon, Everett, Washington, and Orange County, California. Details at flytucson.com.